Hi, everybody. Did you, anybody? Mike, first of all, thank you. We appreciate you. And uh, you're loved, cared for, and we're with you all the way. Appreciate all the stuff you, you've done for us. And if those of you that don't know, Mike was our worship leader the very first year of Novation when we were set up and tear down over at Woodrow Wilson. It was him and an acoustic. Look, look where it's come from. So, all right, we love you. You can go. <laughs> go do your thing. Um, so my Rockies mask, right? Yesterday I was doing some, some stuff in the yard and a neighbor drove by. I have my Rockies flag. I had a Rockies t-shirt on, Rockies shorts. And they go, um, do you like the Rockies? You know, just a little, like, come on. It was kind of funny. Um, yeah, if you're a guest with us or, or you haven't been around in a while, welcome back. And this thing called church, right? The, the building may have been closed, but the church is never closed. The church doesn't close. And it's, you, you're the church. We're the, you take the church wherever you are is where church is. So let's pray and <clears throat> we'll dig into the word this morning. Forgive my allergies too. They're killing me today, so... Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are, a joyful, awesome God, a joyful, awesome Savior. Thank you for bringing us into the relationship, Lord Jesus, that you have with the Father, that we're in that relationship through the Spirit. Remind us of that. Lord, I remind myself this morning that uh, people don't need to hear from me. Uh, they need to hear from you. And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be led by you and pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to say uh, good morning as well to everybody that's watching online. Um, I hope you're all doing well, and we love you very much, and God bless you. Um, years ago, there was a, a lady who wanted to swim the English Channel. Now, the English Channel is the body of water that separates the south of England to the north of France. And I actually, years ago, was on a, the train called the Channel. Anybody ridden the Channel before? It, it leaves England about a mile outside of the body of water, the beach. They started digging a tunnel, and they went all the way down underneath the bedrock of the ocean, and, you, and the train goes through that tunnel and comes back up on the other side, and you're in France. So it's 21 miles. Isn't that kind of freaky? Like, I was kind of claustrophobic thinking, I'm underneath the ocean right now, <laughs> trusting the construction of man. Plus, I was a youth pastor, and the student uh, riding with me broke wind right when we went under the channel. I'm like, I got to go 21 miles with this? Give me a break. But anyway, so it's, it's a large body of water. So she was going to swim 21 miles. That's crazy. She got about 18 miles into the swim, and it was really foggy and dense that day. And she stopped. She said she couldn't do it anymore. When they talked to her afterwards and said, um, you know, why'd you quit? You were so close. And she said, if I could have seen the shore, if I could have focused on that, then I would have made it. I'll tell you another story. Um, when I was a freshman in college, uh, driving home from Rangeley, Colorado, we were in my roommate's 
1971 Ford Bronco short bed. And this will date me a little bit here. I was in the back seat. There were four of us. And, and I said, hey, throw in that new Bon Jovi cassette, because it was a cassette, not a CD. And he opens up the console, and right as he looked in, the road curved. And so he, he looked back up, and he overcorrected in that short wheelbase. Boom, we rolled seven times down I-70, down into a ravine. If we didn't have seat belts and a roll bar, I would not be standing here right now. And that one little distraction caused a great problem. Small distractions can cause big problems in our life. I'll tell you one more uh, thing about fo- being focused. We need something to focus on. We need to stay focused. We need to be focused on the right thing. We have a little lap dog named Daisy, and um, she's small. And she's never looked in the mirror to see her size, because I think she thinks she's way tougher than she really is. And she gets into this little stance when she's going to bark at somebody. And we've been hanging out on our front porch a lot. And so a couple weeks ago, we have this long leash that is hooked to the, to the porch. And she can go far enough out into the grass if she needs to go potty while she's out there with us. One day, we're sitting on our porch, and this guy walks by with his two German shepherds. And she starts growling. And we were like, Daisy, Daisy. And... Uh, all of a sudden, she took off running full speed as she was going after these German shepherds. But she got to the end of her rope, and boom, and she got caught and did a complete backflip. And I not kid you not, it was like the German shepherds were laughing at her, like, this, this is what you get. They like it smiles on their face. I could see them. And it was, it was pretty embarrassing, low light of, of her life, because she didn't get hurt, thankfully, but it was, she got focused on the wrong thing. She was focused on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disobey and do this, this anyway. As you can tell this morning, we're talking about keeping focused. We're in a series called My Two Sons, where we're looking at Paul's letter, second letter to Timothy and the, the letter to Titus. The title of the series comes from Paul calling um, Timothy his son in the faith. He raised up Timothy. He was his spiritual father, his mentor. And then Titus as well, he calls his son in the faith. So we're going to go through these two pastoral letters. And uh, we got to remember in 2 Timothy especially, Timothy was pastoring in a very weird time. The church was being persecuted by the Romans. They were literally being killed and used as human torches. And it, was, it had a great impact on their faith. It was difficult times. And Paul's writing this letter from prison. He's in a Roman prison set to to be beheaded, as far as we can tell from church history, for teaching about King Jesus and preaching about this this new king and preaching the gospel. And so Timothy is, he's probably discouraged. He's going through difficulty. And so Paul, from a prison cell, is, is encouraging him. The passage that we're looking at today is about keeping focus or how to overcome distractions. Paul is helping Timothy to not get distracted by peripheral things and to stay focused on what he needed to be focused on. The first thing, if you're taking notes, is how do we overcome distractions from what Paul's saying today? Keep focused on the central themes of Scripture. 
We can get sidetracked on secondary things and lose our handle on central themes of the Bible. Paul says, remind them, in verse 14, of these things, these central things, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle or quarrel about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. What are the central themes of of Scripture? First and foremost, God, the Trinity, in the beginning, God. God is a joyful being. God, that we have to start everything in our worldview and our theology from the happy Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, in perfect relationship, in perfect community from, from eternity past. And then, then God decides to share that relationship with the world. He creates the universe. Jesus spoke all of creation into be, to, to being. And he shares that with humanity. Well, what did humanity do? They ran from God. They sinned, disobeyed, and hid from God. And we've been doing it ever since. But then the central theme is redemption. That Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on flesh, came into this world, made himself vulnerable to this mess of a world that we created that we messed up in this broken world. And he came in and he taught what God was like. He showed what the Father was like. It says in John chapter 1 that no one has ever seen God except for Jesus, God the Son, making him known. That means Abraham, Moses, David, as much as they loved God, they, didn't re- had, never, they had never beheld him until Jesus came into this world. No one had. And Jesus teaches about what life is about, what God's like, and then Jesus submits himself unto death to free us from death through his resurrection, and then his ascension, and that he's coming back again one day. Jesus is coming back. We don't know when, but he is. He promised the way he went up, he's coming back. He's coming back for us. And so we got to remember that. So how do we live in the meantime? We're disciples of Jesus. We follow him. He, he gets to teach us how to live. The interesting on this, Paul knew more about Jesus. He knew more than any other Christ follower has ever known about the gospel. Jesus spent three years, it says in Galatians, with, with Paul just downloading the gospel into his mind and into his soul. Therefore, he could write about the mysteries, things that are, were, seemed cloudy. He, he, God used him to bring, bring light to it. And yet, Paul never wasted time arguing with people. He never wasted time arguing with others. He said, don't get caught up in quarrels about wor- words. Stay focused on the central truths. Sometimes as believers, we get so caught up in debating that it leads to division. If you want to know why there's so many denominations in the world, it's because somebody took a secondary issue and made it a primary issue, and let's start our own movement. Let's start our own denomination. That's why I do love being non-denominational, because it's, it's, we, we focus on the essentials. Here at, at Novation, we, we want to elevate the primary truths, the central themes, and then let's discuss the secondary things, how we feel about it. And we don't do it in a way, though, that's going to be divisive or divide over. Second thing on, that Paul gives us on overcoming distractions or staying focused is keep focused on your own personal growth. 
He told Timothy, he said, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That's an important passage right there. I think two things need to be uh, identified. Number one, he says, approved to God. Sometimes we think that that means I got to do something to be approved by God. That's not what that means. He's saying, come into to God's word, come into his presence. Like Ephesians 3.12 says that, that because of Jesus, we have freedom and confidence to come to the Father. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, boldly come to the throne of grace. Not shameful and does he love me or not. Boldly come before the Father because of his great love and, what, and who Jesus is and who we are in Jesus. But this is important that you don't just see this of handling the word just for pastors and teachers. That's for every one of us as individuals to properly handle the word of God, to properly understand it. So he says, present yourself to God. Not, we're not presenting others to God. We present ourselves. You're responsible for you. You're responsible for you. You're not responsible for everybody else. It's important that we always remember that too. But reading scripture, I know a lot of times people are intimidated by the Bible, especially if you don't feel like you know the Bible very well. We all got to start somewhere, right? And it's, you got to learn to feed yourself, feed on the word of God. It has to become a habit. You don't eat just once a week. So when you come to, to service on Sunday and hear the Bible be taught, you need to hear it and read it for yourself as well. And learning to, to create that habit is so important. I, I, it's important to me that all of us as believers, that, that we, move from, we move from, it says somewhere in the Bible to, I know exactly where it says that in the Bible. I know the, the book, the chapter, and the verse, and uh, I know the context, and I'm not taking something out of context. You know we can make the Bible say whatever we want it to say, right? We can try to make it fit, a verse fit our frame of mind or, or, or whatever. We got to learn what context really means. Context is what does the verses before this verse say? What does the verse after say? What does it mean throughout the chapter? What does it mean throughout the book in context with the gospel? That's so important. Do you know that most Americans believe that God helps those who helps themselves is a Bible verse? It sounds catchy, right? But that's, not, that's opposite of what the gospel teaches. Like, we were helpless, <laughs> and so we need him to come. Um, and then he said to accurately handle the word of truth. When you see that word accurately handling, you, you think, think of a, a plow, someone that wants to, to plant crops. You, get, you have your plow, you have your, your ox, and it would have pulled your plow, and you hold it so that it goes in a straight line. You don't want your crops to grow in an S shape or, or a triangle. It needs to be in a straight line. And so I actually have a picture of maybe a better illustration. This kid wanted to mow the lawn, so his mom let him mow the lawn for the first time. Can you see that he didn't accurately handle the lawnmower very well? And Look, Mommy. <laughs> you look like he, that's... That, that is definitely a first time of mowing the lawn. Some of you, that would, that would kill you to see your lawn look like that. I know how that is. But that's, that's a picture that we have to see of handling the word of truth. It's also like handling a sword. 
you've ever held a, a, a sword in your hand, they're heavy, they're big. It's not something like they make it look in the movies. It's, it's heavy. You have to know and have the skill to handle that. It says in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The word of God is like a sword that, that, that discerns and judges what's really going on in our desires, what's really going on in our minds and in our hearts. I like to think of it this way, that the, the word of God is a two-edged sword. On one hand, it comforts the afflicted. Life brings pain, difficulty. You need the word of God to show you promises and healing and who God is and how much he, he loves you. But it also afflicts the comfortable. When we disobey or we think we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or we think we know what's best, Jesus' words are going to set us straight. It's going to cut us in the heart. And he's going to say, don't speak to people that way. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do love. Do walk in my joy. Do pursue that. So that's what the word of God does. We want to accurately handle the word of truth. Then there's power. Truly transforming power in knowing the Bible for yourself, not just letting somebody else feed it to you. It says in Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, literally blowing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I put that emphasis of blowing there, like when you say, man, that blew my mind. When you see, read in the Bible and you see something about the gospel, you see something about God, about his plan for your life, his purpose, not just a rule book. This isn't a rule book. This is a life-giving book because the Holy Spirit authored it. It teaches us about Jesus. It teaches us what the author of life, how he wants us to live life. So it it's, teaches us who God is and who Jesus is. And so when you get your mind blown by the truth of God's word, it moves your heart. A blown mind by, whoa, he really loves me this much. This is who I am. When that happens to you, your heart then is moved to worship. So we have to ask ourselves. This is a, a, a challenging for all of us. When's the last time your mind was blown by the word? Because maybe your, your heart hasn't been moved into worship into adoration and rejoicing or healing. There's healing in the Word of God. There's healing in understanding the Scriptures and handling it correctly. All right, the last thing that, that keeps us from being distracted or overcoming distraction, staying focused, is, is keep away from things that stunt your growth. You know, in your little... People say, if you eat this or you do that, it stunts your growth. Well, I think Paul lays out a few things that, that stunt our growth, spiritually speaking, that, that stunt our growth emotionally and relationally. We all want to grow up and be more like Jesus in how we think, act, and speak. There's some things to stay away from, Paul says here. And the first one is arguing. Think about it. When is arguing ever solved anything? Has anyone ever been argued into the kingdom of God? 
Has anyone ever been argued into becoming a follower of Jesus? It doesn't work like that. Arguments don't work. He says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The evil one's desire is to promote disunity. He wants to promote disunity in your friendships. He wants to promote disunity in your marriage, in your family, at the workplace, in the church. He, he wants to promote disunity. But disunity to Jesus is a big deal. He prayed about it in John 17, that we as his followers, as his disciples would walk in love and unity with each other. And that, that's how the world will know that the Father really sent him, is that they be one as, as they are one. So think about the oneness of the Father and the Son. Jesus prayed that, that we as disciples would walk in that same kind of oneness, understanding our oneness with him and our oneness with one another. When I was putting this together, I thought, you know, disagreements are inevitable, right? You, you're always going to have a disagreement with somebody. But there is a fruitful way to disagree. And how many know in this world we're living in right now, everybody knows everything that's right for everybody, right? Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opposite opinion. Every, everybody knows everything for everybody. And it's causing so much disunity and, and foulness. Like it's hard to be on Facebook sometimes and just watch people sit there and argue over stuff. Um, I've felt it personally being polarized on different ends of, of the spectrum to me personally, over the church and over what we're doing. So what do you do when you disagree? Paul, who's talking about this, he had a sharp disagreement with Barnabas, his best friend, when, uh, about when they were going to go on their missionary, second missionary journey, and they argued over Mark. Mark is the guy who wrote the gospel of Mark. Young Mark would have been, Barnabas wanted to bring him, and somewhere in, Mark, in Paul and Mark's uh, encounters with each other, Mark rubbed Paul wrong somehow, some way. We don't know what it was over, but, it, but in this argument, they went separate ways. They went their separate ways over Mark. And it, we know as we read on in 2 Timothy that we're going to find out at the end where, where Paul tells Timothy, bring Mark with you to see me. He's useful to me. So somewhere in there, they found reconciliation over Mark. Paul and Mark had some kind of reconciliation. Who knows? Paul may have repented of something that he was, he was wrong. He was off. So what's the marks of a fruitful disagreement? I bet you can guess the first one. Love. Paul, we're told in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 16, do everything in love. That includes disagreeing. And if we were to be honest with ourselves, me, starting with me, do I disagree in love all the time with people who rub me wrong or get frustrated with? I don't. And I know you don't either. We're, we are fallen, broken people. But we can pursue love. We can pursue learning how to disagree in a way that still is done, that's patient, that's kind, that doesn't keep record of wrongs, etc. The second 
mark of a fruitful disagreement is striving for peace. Striving for peace. Uh, You guys know this scripture, I'm sure. It's a coffee cup scripture that people usually memorize in Philippians chapter 4 where Paul says, do not be anxious for anything, but in all things, by prayers and petitions, make your requests to God. And the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. Well, what we often don't realize is that's not just some mystical God waves his magic wand and, oh, I'm at peace. Of course, there is that type of peace that Jesus only can give, but really in the context If you go a few verses before that, Paul is telling two ladies in the church at Philippi to get along, Eodia and Syntyche. They had a disagreement, and he's saying, listen, rejoice, don't be anxious in the peace. This is a a tangible peace between two people, the peace that Christ brings. Thirdly, seek, seek to understand each other rather than having a come to agreement. That's the problem in marriage, friendships, any argument is you have to see things my way. I'm totally right in this. You want to prove your point of why you're right and why they're wrong. That's never going to produce any fruit, anything good. It will always produce negative. Instead of trying to come to an agreement, that's not even possible. I mean, think of the world that we're living in right now. We got different ideologies and, and, and all kinds of things going on. And, and instead, what we're supposed to do in agreements is, is seek to understand the other person's point of view. Seek to understand why does that person think that way? Why do they think they're right about this? And if you listen, if we're, if we're quick to listen and slow to speak, we're going to act more like Jesus. We're going to be more at peace with others as well. So you don't have to agree. Try to understand. And then the last two are, are, Paul talks about, be patient. Be patient. Fruit of the Spirit. On a scale of zero to ten, how patient are you in disagreements? No one's going to shout it out, I hear you. Um, online, they're all elbowing each other on the couch right now. But it, it is. It's hard to be patient, it's especially in disagreement. And then kindness. Good old-fashioned Kindness. You don't have to agree with somebody to be kind to them on any issue. Just to be kind. It's missing in our world. The second thing that I think Paul says stunts our spiritual growth is what I call conspiracy speculation theology. You guys are going, what in the world? Buckle up. Speculation theology, old wives' tales. I bought some seeds to eat from Costco, and they're a blend of like sprouted seeds. They're really good, healthy for you. Uh, I'm plugging it like a commercial, low carb, vitamins, etc. But I was eating them, and one of the seeds is a watermelon. And Janelle goes, uh, she goes, remember when your kids and people used to say if you ate a watermelon seed, the watermelon was going to grow inside? Anybody else like that's old wives' tale? Or if, if you swallow a piece of gum and you're female, your baby's going to come out with the gum on, on it. And then if you cross your eyes too long, your eyes are going to stay stuck like, you know, like that. We, we begin to believe these things as, as truth. And Paul says this. He says, avoid worldly and empty chatter. 
for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Coronavirus, COVID, and the end of days. Like, I've had some strange questions asked of me <clears throat> from the beginning on this. I do my best to prayerfully respond to people, but I had somebody ask me, you know, do you think this is Jesus' judgment on the world? And I, I immediately, I said, do you think the same hands that touched lepers and healed them and the lame and the sick, those hands are now sending this from he heaven? Give me a break and get a better understanding of who Jesus Christ is. That's not God. That's not how Jesus Christ revealed God. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen what God's like. It doesn't sound like him to me. And then the other thing is people using the word unprecedented. Like, I get it. Um, we've never experienced anything like this. But this isn't unprecedented. There's been plagues and stuff like this from the be beginning of time. It's just weird in our media world and our access to information, it's probably elevated a lot. I was thinking about that, you know, with the other pandemics that have happened in the world. But, but check this out. If you were born in 1890 and you lived 60 years, you die in 1950, here's what you would have experienced. You would have experienced World War I, which they thought that was the end of days. You would have experienced the Spanish flu pandemic. You would have experienced World War II and the rise of Adolf Hitler, the Antichrist, they thought. You would have experienced uh, atomic bombs being dropped and blowing up Japan. And, and, and you would have thought, you've seen it all, right? And yet we go through this, it's unprecedented, da, 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 da. We have to have a proper perspective. Not everything is a conspiracy, and we don't have to speculate on everything. Jesus is going to return when he's ready to return, when the Father says, go. And, and we, we have to stop all of that. It, maybe some of you are old enough to, to remember a guy named Edgar Wisenhunt. January 1st, 1988, he came out with his book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Going to Return in 1988. It was going to be October 4th. You can Google this. It's true. Go to the Google. And he, it, when it didn't happen, he immediately wrote 89 reasons why in 1989 it was going to happen. Fast forward a little bit. Back in 2011, a man spent a bunch of money, billboards all across big cities that said, save the date, Jesus Christ is returning May 21st, 2011. He said, that's it. Listen, when anybody ever says this is the date that he's coming, scratch that off your list. He's going to come when the whole world has heard the gospel. That's when Jesus said the, the end was going to come. Now, don't get me wrong. Can we read the signs of the times and, and all of that? The passage we're looking at next week is going to talk about that. But we need, to, we need to keep our head to the ground, plowed, focused on Jesus Christ, what he's done, and what he's called us to do, and let him sort it all out. It's not healthy for people's spiritual life 
to speculate and have conspiracies. I'm a be readiest. That's my theology. Be ready. Like, I'm either going to die and go be face-to-face with Jesus, or he's going to come back. Either way, I want to be ready. I want to be found doing what he's asked me to do. You want to be ready, found doing and living the way he wants you to live, because that's the best life anyway. Living life from the way he wants us to live is the best way to live life. There's a video going around about a pastor who had a dream back in December about the virus and riots and on and on and on. People said, do you think it's true? I don't know. Does God give dreams? Sure, he can give a dream. But if it happens, it happens. Keep to the plow. Keep your head down. Keep following Jesus. We're with him. We're not worried. We get so caught up into it. And if you can't tell in my voice, I'm kind of over it. It doesn't do any good for people in their spiritual lives to try to figure that kind of stuff out. When you read the book of Revelation, don't take America in 2020 and try to interpret America through the book of Revelation. That's not healthy either. Any of the prophetic books, any of the prophecy, the Bible's not about America. So the sooner we all get over that, the more effective we can be in our communities and our homes and our families and, and just do what Jesus said to do. Let's start there. Are you with me? Online, y'all with me? Okay. All right, the last thing that stunts your growth is youthful lusts, Paul says. Interesting phrase, youthful lusts. All the youth tuned in. What are you, what are you talking about? He says, now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord Jesus from a pure heart. The word lust is simply a overwhelming desire for something that's forbidden. It's more than sex when it comes to lust. You can lust for things that you don't have in a, in a, in a too, too big of a way that it becomes a problem for you. What does this mean, youthful lust? Well, for, for young people, I went to a couple graduation parties yesterday. For young people, life is full of possibilities. The rest of us that are a little bit older, we, I look back on my graduation day. I could describe graduation day like it was yesterday. And that was a long time ago now. 30-something years have flown by because life flies by. But you don't get that when you're a little bit younger. I'm just being real. It fly, time really does seem to fly by. Life is full of possibilities when you're young. What do I want to do with my life? Where do I want to go to college? What do I, career do I, path do I want to follow? And I can tell you, every young person in here, the most important thing you need to do is to say, Lord, you created me. You created me with a purpose. What do you want to do with my God-given life? And you'll live the best life you, you can imagine. When you're trying to do what you want to do versus seeking God first, God, where do you want to spend my life? So important. But I remember being young and life was full of possibilities, when I was young, all I wanted to do was play baseball. So I got a scholarship to play baseball. And I went out to the first day of practice, and there was like nine guys that were as good or better than me. And I was like, uh-oh, this, I don't know how long this is going to last. And then I grew my hair long and wanted to be a rock star. And I have pictures to prove it, I guess. That's me, if you can believe that. That was before we had the Rockies, so that's why there's Royals. But... Um, it said, desert storms support our troops. <laughs> anyway, where'd you find that? 
Um, then I wanted to be an actor. Then I wanted to be a, make money. Then thank the Lord. He said, come on, have a relationship with me when I was 25. And I knew what my purpose was. It was to live for him, that I existed for him, not me. That's a life changer. It's a complete life-changing thing when you realize you exist for him, not the other way around. Teach your kids' parents that. Teach your kids not what do you want to do with your life, what does he want to do with your life, and follow that. Do you know the average college student changes their major four times, three, three to four times before they settle on their, what they really want to do? Plans after graduation change quickly. For my kids, they all graduated from school, smaller schools, and at graduation, they would stand in front, and they would say their name, and then they'd put up on the screen what they're doing afterwards. Well, my kids, it's already changed two or three times for them. My oldest in the Navy did three or four p adventures before she joined the Navy and then got married. When she joined the Navy, she's like, I'm not getting married anytime soon. She got married within a year, and I'm not going to marry a military person. She married a Marine. <laughs> Go figure, right? So my, the youthful lust is, is live it up while you're young. You know, pursue whatever goes. That's, he's saying don't do that. He says the remedy for these youthful lusts is to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Focus on those things. Focus on Jesus. And young people, don't blink. Don't blink, right? I'm 52, and I blinked. I've been present in my life, in my moment, especially following Jesus. But man, you're 18, and then boom, you wake up and you're 30. Am I right? Boom, you wake up, you're 40, 45, 50, on and on, and you, then, then you're in a nursing home. I mean that. I'm not trying, trying to be funny. My dad is 83, and he told me just the other day, man, life sure does go by fast. Life sure does go by fast. So I'm trying to take that to heart to be present in the moment rather than what, what, what I wish life was like or that. Just enjoy what you got right now. We're not guaranteed anything. And it does go by super fast. So if you were to be honest with yourself before the Lord, just you and him, is your life focused on what you know he wants you to focus on? I don't mean a set of lists of do's and don'ts. I mean a life that's pursuing him and let it, building your life on him. If you've never put your faith and trust and acknowledged that he's Lord and he's Savior, you don't make him Lord, you don't make him Savior, he's already that, but you acknowledge it. If you've never done that, do that. That's the starting place. And then you're his disciple, you're his follower. You're following him. You give the keys of your life over to him. Today, where do you need to focus? Maybe you're focusing too much on your, your works or your ability to do for him. And maybe you need to focus on the Holy Spirit in you and his power. Maybe you're focused right now on your guilt or shame from something in the past or regret. Maybe you need to focus on his love and his amazing love that he has for you. When we were singing the blessing, I was weeping just thinking about how much God loves us. I've been making a practice of receiving his love every day, taking a few minutes on my walk. 
and it's been it's a game changer. It frees you to know that his love when you're in it really you, you're already loved when you acknowledge it and receive it. It's going to change you from the inside out and you'll become a more loving person. You'll love people more because you know God loves people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit and thank you for you. God, I pray that each one of us would think rightly about you. That we would focus on you and your purpose for our life. Remind us that we exist to love you and to love others. Help us to express that, Lord. Lord, we repent this morning from faulty thinking. We repent from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thinking we know what's best. Lord, we repent of that, God. I, I repent of that. We change our minds about that. We want to go in a, the right direction towards you. Lord, for those in this room and those watching online that are wounded right now, show them that you're the healer. Holy Spirit, have your will and have your way. Bring emotional healing where that needs to happen, relational healing where that needs to happen, physical healing where that needs to happen, Lord. Most importantly, a spiritual healing. We honor you. We love you. We're grateful today. Help us to focus on the blessings that are in our life, not the negative things or the struggles, but to focus on you. Forgive us for feeling sorry for ourselves when we do that, Lord. Jesus, you experienced suffering, incredible suffering. And you identify with us. We trust you today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, everybody online. Have a great week.